0: Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban.
1: And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co host as
0: we explore the future of downtown real estate.
1: This This is Urban Urban Foundry.
0: Foundry. Hello, everyone. Today on Urban Foundry, I have an extra special guest here with me in the studio for our listeners. My co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill, is out today, so unfortunately, you just have to get to listen to me and Jacob shoot the shoot the shit. So, Jacob Everett is the State Director at the Center of Infrastructure and Economic Development and a Principal of Courses of Strategies. Jacob established Courses Strategies in 2022 in order to continue his work at the intersection of the public and private sectors. Jacob is a Certified Economic Developer accredited by the International Economic Development Council and a graduate of the University of Oklahoma's Economic Development Institute. He currently serves as a member of Indiana Economic Development Association's Legislative Committee and the Town of Cicero, Indiana Economic Development Committee. From 2019 to 2022, Jacob worked with the national specialty consulting firm, McGuire Sponsor, where he advised growing companies on their investment, location, and job creation strategies. Prior to working as a private sector advisor, Jacob spent a decade in various roles of local and regional economic development. Served as executive director of the Indy Partnership, the regional economic development arm housed within the Indy Chamber. In this role, Jacob led a team focused on attracting new investment and jobs to a nine-county central Indianapolis region. Prior to that, Jacob also served as a top economic development official in Blackford County, Indiana, where he led efforts to attract businesses, retention, and community development and workforce development. He also, during that time, served as the Eastern East Central Indiana Regional Partnership Board and president of the East Central Indiana Economic Development Council. Jacob, that's impressive. I didn't know that. I think it just means I'm old. I've been around a while. I guess so. (laughs) So tell me, what's new with Corsa Strategies, right? Founded this year, 2022, so we were recording this in 2022. What what made you decide to start Corsa? And tell me a little bit as well about infrastructure and economic development for the Center of Infrastructure and Economic Development.
1: Andrew, thanks for having me, and congrats on the podcast. Thank you. Glad things are going well. So thanks for having me on today, and look forward to chatting with you here for a little bit. Yeah. So I started Corsa Strategies just recently, and and really looking to continue what I've been doing for the last really fifteen years, and that's that's working really like you said in the intro, right at the, right at the intersection of where you know private business and the public community, economic development all come together. So my effort out on my own now is to continue doing what I've been doing, right? And that's working with companies, helping them in their location decisions. And in that work, I work with communities all across the country, whether that's on helping a specific project or just engaging with them in general with what's going on in the industry around the country. My work with the center is is really focused on alternative energy and, renew- mm. and renewable energies this is a, a relatively new organization it's a national organization that's really sole purpose is to help communities you know grapple with and, and figure out how they want to address renewable energies in their communities, you know, that could be anything around policies, ordinances and things like that. All communities really are being faced with across the country, right? As, as things like wind and solar become more and more prevalent, how are communities going to zone, permit those kind of opportunities? And this organization is really just a resource for community leaders who are wrestling with those, those type of decisions.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, I can imagine there's more and more pressure on communities to respond to citizens' concern. Yeah. About you know the changing climate regardless of what's changing it it's i think we can all agree it's changing to some extent for whatever reason and communities need to figure out how to support these things right
1: yeah and you see it really on the corporate level well as well right and in yeah. the work you do you know, more and more companies have certain portfolio requirements for, for their energy usage and they have uh, they have green energy mandates and goals across their footprints. And so as much as communities are responding to maybe climate change, they're also responding to just the demands from the private sector and what those companies, you know, require for their operations and how those operations are, are, are powered. So I think it cuts across both kind of personal dynamics, but also just very real world corporate and private sector influences.
0: Yeah. Well, and it can be controversial too. I mean, you know think about a wind farm Indiana's flat right wind farm is a natural you know you drive up 65 you see a lot of it i can understand that the community may not you know love windmills in their in their backyard right or solar panel farms things like that and there's a lot of education going but those are things that for lack of a better term for indiana those are natural you know, we have land that's pretty flat. right?
1: Yeah, I think different parts of the country are going to have different assets, right, that make them more attractive for wind or solar or different, you know, even even different kinds of energy. And the center's whole, you know, mission is to provide information and resources to communities that are addressing those kind of things, right? There, there's always lots of, of rumor and in, innuendo and all kinds of, you know, uh, opinions about things, and the center tries to to just provide facts about what these kind of projects are and are not, and what some of the impacts uh, are and are not as well. So again, the organization's relatively new, but it's it's uh, again that's the whole goal is is as you have some of those discussions, which as you as you pointed out, can be challenging sometimes. Just like in any economic development project, there there's always discussion to be had at the local level, and the center's purpose is to to provide some kind of fact based information and provide examples of what other communities have done around the country and empower local leaders to make informed decisions.
0: What's interesting too is, I mean, this is a huge trend that's changing, but, you know, if I look back on your career and and our audience just heard a little bit about it, I mean, you have this really diverse body of experience. What is kind of the three big trends right now in economic development, right? What are communities grappling with? What are they trying to do and achieve that's maybe different than 10 years ago?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Maybe it's different. Maybe it's not. I think some of it's fundamental, but it's very acute right now. And I'll go, I'll go through the three and then maybe we can peel them apart. But to me, it's, it's labor. It's been labor for a long time. I think the acuteness of the labor dynamic is as important as it's ever been. The second is very connected to, to your daily work and that's real estate availability. It's, it's, we're really at a critical point, and it's become a real a real constraint across across the U.S. And the third, I think, is really just the financial markets, and that's probably the newest. And again, we can get into all these, but the financial status quo has been status quo for a long, long time. And in the last, you know, six to nine months, that's really changed dynamically, and we're all seeing that dramatically impact what companies are doing, what developers are doing, and so those are the three I'd pick off. So, right. let's go through them.
0: Yeah. So, tell me about labor. There's a ton of 'Cause there's a the great resignation, there's huge shortages, rising wages. Wage data came out last week, still going up, right? Fed yep. is and then yep. that ties it into the financial markets, yep. right? But we'll we'll pause on financial markets. What are what are these challenges, right? Did this just creep up on communities where they all of a sudden woke up and said, Shoot, we don't have enough workers anymore? Or is this something that's been brewing for a long time? You know, you know I think
1: labor, been- labor has been and you know, you and I both, you know, really co- we collaborate together, and, and we both do site selection work, right? And so you're you you know this as well as I do. But labor has been continually climbing the ladder in terms of what's important to companies as as they determine where to where to invest and where to grow, right? I mean, that's been happening, I would say, for the last decade. Right. I think obviously COVID and and uh, the, the, the the couple of years after after all that has just been something I don't know that anybody could have predicted with you know changes to labor force participation the wage increases people relocating right around the country i mean it's just it was just kind of a a perfect storm of a lot of different things so is it more important than it was a decade ago yeah is it more important than it was pre covid so you know 3 years ago i don't know i mean it was already pretty high right so i, I but i do think the problem has become more acute and obviously you know workers are in a, a great position right now in the economy and they can demand a premium wage The secret sauce, you know, that, you know, guys like you and I and and others in our communities work on is is trying to figure out where our (laughs) clients can be successful. and, And it's extremely challenging right now. I'm not aware of these secret places around the country where there's just this abundance of workers that nobody's found, right? I don't think that's the answer. So the work I focus on, you know, is really trying to understand what are the key skill sets that these folks are looking for and and putting them in positions where we, we believe they're going to be successful. And unfortunately for, you know, because things are so tight in the labor market, size, you know, matters to some extent. We've got to We've got to put companies in, in communities that are big enough to handle the needs they're going to have in, in now and in the future.
0: Yeah. No, and, and I think to your point, right, I mean, maybe it was COVID that brought to a head. I think there was some macro trends that in retrospect, we all probably could have seen. Where there there likely was people that were already seeing it and they were probably yelling and everyone else was like, Oh, unemployment's still five or six percent, I can still hire and then one thing comes along that shifts what would be a multi year trend into a shorter time span and exacerbates the problem. The the trouble I, I I begin to see is for some types of jobs, there's not really hope in sight. You know, a lot of people are, are claiming, Oh, this recession, it'll reset things and it'll go back to, you know, you name the date three, four, five years ago, and everything's going to be fine. And the more I look at the data, the more I think about it, big picture, macro, I I don't know if that's the case for every single job. I think there are some jobs that are just more structurally uh, loose or elastic, meaning if you're a warehouse worker at one company, you can be a warehouse worker anywhere. Maybe you can shift into other similar wage category or skill level jobs fairly easily. But if you're looking for PhDs in chemicals or material sciences, Yeah, that's a pretty limited pool to begin with, right? Right. And so you throw on things like immigration policy and other factors, you know, and and the other fact is, is a lot of the growth that we're seeing with companies, and I think this is the macro trend over 20 years, is in industries that are new, where new skill sets are needed. You Think about automotive. Historically, we were making just combustion engines, incrementally improving those. And now it's like, okay, in 10 years, we're no longer going to make this thing we've made for 130, going to me- make this new thing that's powered by a different engine, different drivetrain. And then, oh yeah, now we're going to iterate on that. But guess what? Different skills, right? Right? You don't need a guy that knows how to build an engine anymore. It's not necessary for an EV or electric vehicle. To- the listeners don't know the acronym.
1: Yeah. You, you brought up a lot of good points there. I think one is the acceleration of things that were already happening. I, I think there's definitely truth to that. I think some of these things were Matriculating through the economy and through the labor markets, but but COVID kind of brought everything to a fine point and, and made some things change faster than maybe they would have. But but even there was some writing on the wall. You know we've been we've been concerned in in kind of skilled trades labor for. 15 at least years of, of kind of this cliff where a bunch of these experienced skilled trades folks were going to retire. We've, we've known that for, for yeah. over a decade. Right. And, and we still worry about it today. I think the past couple of years maybe put a greater focus on it. But projects we work on, that's a concern, right? We, we're trying to understand when we're looking at, at, di- at different regions around the country. I mean, that, that's a big concern if one region has significantly more of its its workforce in, in an older demographic because, you know, you just have to worry about replacing them. And that's why then we go look at things like, was that area growing or not? You know, right. if it's flat, if the area is flat and those folks are going to, going to retire in the next five years, I'm worried about my client's success, you know, in year seven, eight, nine, or <laughs> 10, right? So, so those things are poignant. I also think about automation a lot, right? I think that's to me, probably the biggest thing that I think when we look back five, 10 years from now, I think that's the item that we're going to, We're going to look back and say was accelerated the most. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a lot of eyeballs on that right now, but it was already happening. It certainly happened during, you know, the year and a half, 18 months, whatever that we were largely kind of constrained and and somewhat shut down as a country. And and, and there's no going backwards on that, right? I mean, companies are going to continue to automate and invest in ways that reduce the need for standard tasks. But to your point, there's lots of great opportunities that come out of that.
0: You need people that can program the robots. Right,
1: it's a totally different skill set, right? And and I actually wrote an article about this, I think it was last year, but I I reviewed a lot of research on on the automation topic and it's fascinating. And really all the experts that are much smarter than me, I mean, they really say, if you look at all the changes we've had as a civilization over time, automation should not harm us. It It should end up being a good thing. There should be way more opportunity generated by this transition. But it's all about... Our ability as a country, as as a planet, to transition those workers, because if they don't get transitioned, that's where the problems lie. And real quickly on automation, I'll give you an example. I visited a client of mine down in Fort Worth two weeks ago, and, and they're just setting up brand new operation it's a foreign company and just absolutely impressive what they're doing. I mean, the, the steps is this manufacturing starting with really sh- stainless steel sheets and nobody touches that thing for the first you know, three steps. I mean, it's, it's, it's right. going through automated process. It's moved by an autonomous forklift to the next station. I mean, so three, three steps before anybody, a human intervenes with it. I mean, it's pretty, pretty impressive again, but there's a whole army of people right. sitting behind a glass wall. Monitoring, managing, you know, programming—all that—and that's that's where we're headed. It's a little scary to people. I get it, but I see that as opportunity.
0: No, I think it is, and it's also worker safety. Yeah, right. Think about stamping transmissions. I worked at a transmission plant years ago, and I mean that was a heavy. You're taking sixty-pound plates and stamping into a very dangerous machine. That's all automated now. That's right, right. And you're putting some screws on. You're doing a quality check, and that's it, right. And there's no there's no more backache breaking work, literally, right? right? In some cases. One thing that I think I've struggled with is I've researched these issues. It seems like there's a lot of people complaining about the problem in general, right? But it also seems like some of the answers lie in education. And it seems like as a country, we don't always see education as this natural national strategic priority. When when you think about where the ball's going and all these new areas of research and innovation, I feel like it should be higher up in the conversation than it is. Why do you why do you think that is?
1: So I think as humans, we really naturally like to boil things down to something that's very simple so we can get our arms around it. And I think when you're talking about things like labor force and and inflation and automation and worker transition and all that, it's it's very overwhelming, right? And so I think people naturally shy away from it. I also think our political environment at the local state federal level is is so short-term focused. You're lucky if you can get, you know, political leadership to really focus even the full four years, let alone beyond the four years. And you're talking about, you know, automation again, as an example, you're talking about probably 10 to 20 years of a transitional period that takes resources and strategy and all that. And I think we're just not designed to do that very well. But overall, you're right. Education and kind of being thoughtful about these dynamics is is the answer and we talked about renewable energies a little bit being better informed understanding you know things at a little more granular granular level is important i don't know how we achieve that other than continuing to try to put people in leadership positions whether they're elected officials or they lead nonprofits or whatever at the community level who who
0: have that longer term vision right because it when we talk about some of these investments, whether it's sustainability or education, you know the paybacks aren't in an election cycle. Right, that's the problem fundamentally. Right, you have to be planting a seed today so that in twenty years you have supremacy right. over economic competition. Right, and in a world that's deglobalizing rapidly, yep. we have to begin to think more like that. And I hate to say cold war mentality, but if you really think, why did NASA exist? Right. And think about all the innovation that something like the NASA space program really propelled for 30 years after we landed Neil Armstrong on the moon. That was tremendous. And that was a national priority, right? Top down, big picture where we were going to beat the Soviets to the moon. But it led to all this innovation and growth that we sometimes take for granted. And there's a generation that's benefited from it. We haven't made a collective national effort, I think, thinking that way in a long time because it, for whatever reason, because it's tough, it's difficult. We have, you know, things like federalism and, and states' rights and local rights. And, you know, you think about the layers in education, right? You have Department of Education at a federal level, and then you have state boards, and then you have local community level, you know. And so who guides what? I think there's been more, I don't know, testing of what that means than ever before, at least in, in recent history. In addition, we have an education system that, Let's be honest, was set up for a different economy, for a different time under different circumstances that fundamentally hasn't evolved very much since my grandfather went to college, right? Right? You go to f- 4 years of school, you learn some sort of craft of sorts, and then you're out in the world, you never go back for education, right? And it's this very s- kind of linear path. And I don't I think we have to be prepared for an economy that's more evolutionary. So,
1: yeah, I agree with all that. I think one quick comment on education, you know, I was an economic developer on the, on the public side for a decade. And, you know, I was always advocating for resources, right? I need to build some infrastructure. I need to, you know, create some program, whatever it might be. And whenever my elected officials asked me about some investment they were being asked to make related to education, my answer was always do it. You know, I need money for a road or or to expand rail or, or whatever it might be, but I never, I never advised my My elected officials to to decline an investment supporting education because again that is that is the long view that is where you know again it's it's if I if I build a road I can show you that you know a year from now but the education stuff is is what pays off in the long run for communities for the state for the country and to your point about achieving big things as a country I think there's states. Uh, around the U S that have done a good job of kind of tackling bigger things and saying, you know, this is what we're going to be and who we're going to be and, and we're going to go, go make it happen. I do unfortunately agree with you that as a country, we haven't done a lot of that kind of big meaty stuff in a really unified fashion. And again, and not to, not to keep hitting the same note, but I do think tackling, tackling automation in this transition based on the research I've done is going to be massive for the success or failure of the global economy, certainly the US economy over the next 20 years and I just don't think anybody's paying attention to it. And I mean by the time they start start to pay attention is I think it may be too late and but but that's an opportunity to kind of rally everybody and do something big like you're talking about, but I don't see the I don't see anybody, you know, carrying that flag yet, unfortunately.
0: No, no it's tough. So what was that second factor you talked about? Real estate availability,
1: Real estate availability, yeah. Your favorite.
0: Yeah, I know. It's it's, it's a curious thing. I feel like over the last five years, there's less real estate available in general. And and for industrial, that's certainly true, right? National industrial vacancy is less than 4% across the country. Historically, 7% has been the median average, right? So that's less than half or about half of what it usually was. But we're also seeing kind of an interesting trend where... Even with other types of commercial space, the existing product type doesn't, is not fit for purpose anymore, just because the world's changed so quickly. Right. You know, what do you see with communities? How, how attuned to that are they? You know, is that something they're monitoring going, you know, what and our vacancy for certain types of commercial space that match these industries is really getting low and we need to be proactive on it? Or is it more reactionary where developers are coming to them with opportunities to address needs in the market?
1: I think communities have a decent feel because there's been a focus in, in the economic development world for probably 10, 15 years on having available space. Right. But I, I do think that mentality really relates to largely industrial product. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of discussion kind of uh, in the ether about office, but it's really, it's really kind of the limitations of it. It's really mostly, Hey, do you have a speculative industrial building in your community? I think you're right that as the economy has evolved, again, probably accelerated by the last few years, other types of product and markets are are, are becoming obsolete, are undesirable, especially if you look at kind of these growing communities, suburban, urban around the country. You're seeing such kind of high-quality mixed-use development that nobody wants some of this traditional commercial space. Right. And I, my gut tells me most communities don't necessarily understand where that product is headed five to 10 years from now. Right. And we've seen it, you see it already around the country, but you know, you're going to end up with some more dinosaur properties, which no community wants that just, you know, somebody's stuck with and what do you do with it? And, and, and it becomes an eyesore and, and ultimately cost somebody a lot of money to tear right. it down or redevelop it rather than being a little more proactive. Unfortunately, I, I can't say I, I'm seeing much of that mentality yet. Cause I don't, I don't think there's an awareness.
0: Yeah. What do you think, you know, there's been a lot made of housing shortages, Right, you know, and I mean, granted, the market's cooling a little bit, interest rates, right, naturally putting a little bit of a damper on it. But in general, right, if you start looking at the math, and at first I was very much like, no way, there's there's undersupply. Then you really chart it, and you go, wow, we really haven't been building post Great Recession at a speculative clip, right? And I'm not a residential expert, but more and more that's becoming a factor as we look at site selection to say, okay, great, are the workers there? Yes, no, maybe sort of is there workforce housing or affordable housing, not just HUD affordable, but affordable to the average worker without subsidization in this community or in the pipeline, this community, that's becoming more of the next data point we're looking at to say, okay, great. You know, there may not be this plethora of workers just waiting for a job in this community, but you know what, if this area has the right amount of housing and it's continuing to show growth, it can continue to support growth your odds over 10 years are probably going to get better, right? right? And I don't think a lot of communities, in my opinion, whether they're urban or suburban, have really woken up to that fact to say, are my zoning and land use in in line with supporting this initiative, right? Urban communities have different difficulties in suburban communities, but also what are our goals as a community, right? Should we be courting developers to come here and build additional housing or look at creative kind of plans that aren't just – Large scale projects, but maybe you are slightly smaller. I don't know. Has that been a discussion at all? You think?
1: Yeah, I think housing has become. It's funny because I'm an economic developer, you know, at my core, and and so I still have friends in the industry, and and, and they would claim they've they've become housing developers uh, <laughs> across the country, <laughs> yeah. which which I think is there's some there's some truth to that. I do think communities have to be ready to capitalize on opportunities to develop quality housing, whether that's you know market rate or, or kind of that missing middle housing which is more just working class housing or even affordable and money was flowing at really unprecedented rates the last few years and that money was going to go somewhere. And that money was going to go somewhere. And if your community wasn't ready to capitalize on that, that opportunity, it was going to go somewhere else. And and so that goes to, to, to planning and zoning. It goes to entitlements. It goes to infrastructure. So there was a lot of dollars committed to housing, but it, it, just like everything else that impacts economic development, your community has got to be ready for these opportunities. Right. And it's got to be, it's got to kind of be forward thinking. If private sector dollars approach you about developing multifamily housing or a new single family neighborhood. And it's going to take them 18 months to get entitled and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're just, they're going to go put their money somewhere else. Right. So that's unfortunate because now we're in a totally different fiscal market where the dollars are flowing much, much more slowly and much differently. Right. And so for for some communities, they've lost those opportunities. The unfortunate thing about the housing, and I'm not a residential expert either, but, you know, we certainly see. Lots of housing, lots of very high quality housing built across the country. Unfortunately, they've been built in a limited number of places. Yep. And I think, unfortunately, for, for small smaller communities or some communities that, that are not on the right side of the equation in the current market, you're seeing winners and losers in, in, across the country, right, where you're seeing migration from one place to the other. So. I don't know what the stats are. There may be there may be enough houses for everybody uh, across the country, but unfortunately, for for some communities, that's because maybe they have an abundance, and, and other people are getting to the, these growing areas.
0: No, I mean, I, I think you know, in general, you know, part of it is also chicken and the egg. Yeah. Okay, great. We we spent the last ten years boosting industrial or boosting other forms of commercial. Right. We use our different economic development tools to incentivize that. And then, you know, I was meeting with a community recently for a residential development project we're working on uh, with a developer. I'm not a residential expert, but I understand development. And they said, hey, we want more of housing in this price bracket, an affordable bracket. Yep. You know, in central Indiana, that's around $300,000 a home, plus or minus. And at the same time, they said, we know we need more of this to be able to continue to fuel our commercial development. At the same time, they just doubled all their site impact fees on developers. Hmm, Right. Right. And so, and and to the audience, what a site impact fee is, you know, what does it charge a developer to hook up each individual parcel to utilities, sewer, water, roads, things like that? You know, it goes into the city coffers and it pays for sewer. It pays for park impact fees. It pays for traffic impact fees. And it's not a big deal if you're doing large warehouses because you're paying that fee, whatever it is, we'll say it's $10,000 a parcel. One time, right, for that one parcel which has a million square foot warehouse on it. But if you're building on that same million square foot warehouse, you can fit five, seven hundred individual smaller units right. at three hundred thousand dollars a unit, and you're paying ten thousand dollars on each single one of those parcels, all seven hundred, right? And so economically, right, there's this big skew, and you kind of go, I get that. And then the next question is, well, what tools are you using to offset? And they're like, well, we really don't have any, right? Or we don't really have a pr- proven method. And all of a sudden, you go that. And then, you know, to get into our next topic, you know, the 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 home builder who's on the other end with the developers, kind of going, well, I don't I don't know what the market's going to be like in two years. Interest rates are at seven percent. They were at three percent right. earlier this year. That three hundred thousand dollar house is almost double, right. twice as expensive to the average buyer maybe we should look elsewhere. Maybe we should pause for a moment because there's too much uncertainty. And it's interesting to see that more and more often as we're doing projects that have a bigger residential component because that's what cities are saying they want. Their actions aren't necessarily kind of aligning with what they're saying they want, which is fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, two comments. Uh, The first around, you know, saying they want residential but then making it harder to develop residential. And, And that goes back to my previous comment about you know communities kind of being ready and i think that that all ties in and and, and there's a lot of really good people in community and economic development leadership and, and i sat in that chair for a long time but i think sometimes we forget we come up with good policies but then when you actually go to affect them in a deal they don't work right, right. <laughs> and, and so uh, i whenever i talk to communities and i do a lot around the country that's part of my message is you know when you send a signal uh, uh, to the private sector that you want something, you need to be serious about it and you need to be ready for it. And that means a lot of different things, but your example is, is spot on to say, okay, we, we all need housing. Can, you know, Come talk to us developers who want housing. And then, then you put up barriers or processes or timelines that are unworkable. Uh, so certainly encourage all of our public sector leaders, leaders out there to kind of put their developer hat on and think about the economics, like you described, or even just the process and timeline, because sometimes those can be huge barriers. The other thing I, that I was going to comment on is I do see communities, Indiana, where you and I sit, happens to be one of them, that are being a little more creative in how housing development can be can be funded uh, largely around infrastructure mm-hmm. and allowing you know the use of of the TIF, uh, so tax increment financing tool, uh, that is available in, in parts of the country to be used in, in certain circumstances around residential. Again, I think. From my vantage point, it's a smart way to give local officials the option, the opportunity to partner. If if they view housing as as a priority need, they can help get a deal done.
0: Really quick, just because you're an expert in this, explain to our audience, Tiff, tax yeah. and criminal fine. in simple, tiff, simple tiff. terms. Yeah, yeah.
1: I uh, love TIFF. So TIFF exists. Again, it has different names. In Indiana, it's called TIFF. And in many in many uh, other states, it is as well. Tax increment financing. Essentially, what you're doing is you're taking new tax dollars. So you're not taking existing tax dollars. You're putting them in a, a separate bucket. And you're doing something different with them than it would otherwise happen. I don't know if that's a good example. but So Andrew, Andrew owns a house. Yep. And he pays $100 a year in taxes. Andrew builds a second story on his house. He continues to pay $100, and on the second story, the other 50 that he's going to pay for the the new taxes on the, on the second story, the other 50 is going to go in a different bucket. And the city or some government entity is going to take that 50 and do something different than it normally would have do- done. Often, you're going to help some sort of development, right? You're going to pay for infrastructure. You're, you're going to accomplish something specific to help an industrial park, a multi-fam- uh, multi multi a mixed use development, you're going to specifically use those dollars typically to support some form of economic development. And again, it's, it's, I view it as a Mm self-funded program because you're taking revenue that didn't exist. You're doing something specific with it for a period of time. When that period of time comes to a close, Andrew's $150 payment is now
0: going to go back to normal. So it's a way to use the new bucket to, you know, create a ripple effect essentially.
1: Right? That's right. Your your intent is that by achieving something specific, whether it's housing or industrial or landing, you know, you know, some some new company in town, you're gonna to utilize these dollars to help achieve that goal. In the long run, you're gonna get way more back than you put into it, right? Because right. you're gonna have jobs, you're gonna have quality of life, you're gonna have new housing, you're gonna have additional kids going to your school, whatever those ripple effects are, your small investment by utilizing TIF enabled all those longer-term things, especially if you think about an asset, right? So today we have a vacant farm field. We're going to utilize TIF to put in roads and put in three industrial buildings. So now let's say TIF expires in 20 years. So the TIF goes away. Well, you still have three industrial buildings that are paying taxes and providing jobs really in perpetuity or until those buildings become obsolete, right? So that's, that's the theory And again, those jobs are supporting the housing in your community and that housing supporting the schools. And and so it all ties together.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Do you see, you know, speaking of some of these challenges, right, vacant properties or we'll call it underappreciated or not fully realized properties. Do you think there's a big divergence right now between what urban cores and centers are facing as far as economic challenges? maybe what suburban or rural communities are facing as challenges when it comes to economic development? I do think there's probably
1: quite a big difference in what's going on. It seems pretty polarizing in terms of from large urban centers. There's quite a few that are are doing really well and they continue to thrive. There seems to be some some others that are really kind of plateauing and and struggling. Suburban America seems to continue to, to thrive, at least in my experience. But I think Anytime they're 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 tackling challenges or, de- or dealing with you know some sort of adversity or even growth opportunities, because their size is not so so massive, they seem to be able to to address those issues a little more effectively and yeah. get their arms around them. Our urban cores right across the country are they're they're old, they're yeah. big Ge- geographically, they're 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 huge. Right, you think about Detroit, right? The Grids, population man. it used to support and what it supports now, and the, the geography of it—they're—they're they're just challenges that are unique. You know, Cleveland. You know, yeah. you know Cleveland better than anybody is another one of those those cities. There's a lot of great stuff going on in those places, yeah. but there's just—it's just a much much bigger nut to crack. It seems like, yeah. And and even though they're experiencing, you know, most of them are experiencing population growth and, and new investments, the the suburban communities seem to have even more kind of momentum and the ability to accelerate financially right. to get things done and make improvements to quality of life and schools and those kind of things where the, the urban cores just seem to be, even those that are growing seem to, you know, continue to kind of fight an uphill battle.
0: Yeah. And, and I think the, the proverbial question that I've been kind of struggling with is, you know, we've seen a post great recession, a, a resurgence of urban cores leading up to COVID there was a ton of great activity across the country, both small, mid-size, and then large gateway cities. Gateway cities are places like New York City or Los Angeles, but in, in the middle tier, places like Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Detroit, cities that, you know, have pretty big scale, have a lot of similar makeup and tapestry, although smaller scale than some of the bigger cities, had seen a really strong resurgence. And a lot of it was tied around this idea, right? Every developer, I joked, you know, circa 2017 had a project that had uh, advertisement that had live-work-play in it somehow, right? Right. right. It was these building these mixed-use projects. And, and I'll be honest, you know, to some extent, and this is a cynic in me, they all began to look pretty similar, formatted sure. fairly similarly. Sure. No matter where you went. But what happens when, you know, with remote work, you start taking out that work factor, right? Because urban cores, they don't have – you have old infrastructure, you have older buildings, small, like bigger area, smaller plots of land typically. So, incentivizing saying, hey, this office tower thing didn't work out. We're going to have Amazon have big warehouses here and we're going to incentivize those. That's not a tool that's really readily available to right. them, or that's a decision that I don't think they can make just structurally, right? Right. What, what, what does their future look like without the work element? four or five days a week, that traffic that drives so much economic activity that supports the small local businesses, that supports the local entrepreneurs when the average person's coming down town, whether whatever city you live in, two days a week instead right. of four.
1: I think it's a great question. And I I don't know that I have an answer. It, it it was interesting to me that the residents are what the residents are what helped some of these cities survive right COVID, right? Uh, because if it wasn't for if it wasn 't for the growth some of these urban cores had seen you know leading up to twenty nineteen really twenty fourteen to twenty nineteen i don 't know how they they would have even <laughs> limped along yeah. uh, but but thankfully um for for most urban cores there had been a resurgence pre covid i think you you raise a great question now in terms of what happens next because i I do think there's a reality of the future is not going to look like the past and live, work, play and all that concept is certainly going to be different going forward. I think communities uh, that, that are kind of in that top tier, right? Your NFL cities, I think those are things that can't be moved, right? So NFL stadiums, NBA stadiums, things like that help, right? Because you've got a constant draw year round, correct? The entertainment element, the entertainment element is huge. And those things don't migrate overnight to, to the suburbs. I also think, you know, the political centers, of states will continue to matter. Right. And so, you know, the places you named the Columbus, Ohio, the the Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, because that's where the political seat of power rests. I think those communities continue to thrive. Maybe some without some of those assets I just mentioned, you know, I don't know what their future looks like, you know, over the next decade. I don't think anybody does. I have talked to communities that are being, I think they're being thoughtful and, and proactive about, looking for more conversion of some of these buildings they know are going to become really vacant or obsolete for the office market, right? Right. We've seen, in a lot of these markets, we've seen big redevelopments, right, of some of the bigger buildings to multifamily. That's been a trend across the country. But you've got urban cores that are dotted with small footprint, maybe two or three-story older brick buildings that are cool buildings, and you don't want to tear them down. And I think some cities are realizing, like, the odds of that being repopulated with office workers is, is really, really low. So to, to the discussion we had earlier about, well, how do we make it this conducive for redevelopment into the the next natural best thing, multifamily, right? You've got to set up some programs and some, some efforts that are specifically targeted to that because that's not where the market's been. It's yeah. been new construction or it's been large-scale redevelopment. And looking at some of your – again, your urban core, right? Like you said, small parcels but you've got a million of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so you've got to deal with the fact that they're there and you don't want them to sit vacant, right? So coming up with those policies and engaging with your development community, I think is a strategy that could work because population density at the end of the day matters a lot. Does right. the business stuff, does people be in the office matter a lot? Absolutely. But so does population density.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, if you're not relying on 30% uh, or 40%, I don't know what Indianapolis statistic is of commuters into the city, right? You have to then recreate that and have people live here then, right? right, Because that just, that solves the problem. And I think that's the one thing that I think, at least I'm most concerned about going forward with urban cores is how do you replace that? Because that's a big number. And I think there's been a lot of just natural optimism, right? Secretly, you know, in in hush conversations at happy hours that, Hey, you know, we're going to have people come back and this and that and I I want to be as optimistic as everybody else, but the more and more clients I talk to and we work on their hybrid and remote strategies, I mean, that's becoming the normal. There's no more new normal. It's the normal now. And we're not going to see people demand people come back four or five days a week on a mass scale at big corporations. I just don't see that happening.
1: There's, as you know, there's a few companies kind of trying that line in the sand policy and I don't see that being successful long-term. I think workers have proven by and large that they can be very productive in, the, in some sort of hybrid schedule. And, and I just think that's the new standard. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure on ur- urban cores. I don't think a lot of people want to talk about it. I don't think they're going away in any stretch, no. but, but they all faced, even the growing ones, they all faced challenges uh, pre-COVID. And I think those challenges, they certainly didn't get better uh, post-COVID. Maybe they got worse. But yeah, I think you know, continuing to evolve and really be specific about your strategies around those again redevelopment, I think is going to be is going to be important in strategizing around what office means. You know, really embedding and, and working with your your real estate development communities, you know, locally, I think is a recipe for success because really you need everybody at the table to kind of figure out how's this how's this machine going to work over the next five years because nobody. Nobody really knows, right? Yeah. But, but getting people around the table, if the if the development community and the real estate community and you know the government economic development community is, they're all working in silos. It's I don't think that's hard. going to be successful. There's got to be dialogue going on because it is going to be different. Yeah. How does remote work? How do remote workers impact economic development? I don't think anybody knows that in terms of traditional economic development, right? Most cities, states, I don't know that I've seen any really that are really have addressed it in terms of well, how do we, you know, incentives are are part of you know, the yeah. game. And how does that work for, what if, what if these people are going to live all across the country, but they're all going to be here twice a month, twice a month, whatever. Right. But, but we're still going to have a facility. We're going to do our R and D in this facility. You still want to have that, right. There's still value in your community and probably some number of those people are going to live there. So there's just questions like that, that are, I think people are grappling, grappling with. And yeah. And nobody knows how to answer. And even back to your point about the housing, but trading that off, you know, trading off office for more housing and how that works. It's it's very dependent on location too, right? As you know, yeah. I mean, where, how how specific states tax workers and commuters and all those kind of things make a huge difference as well. So there's, there's so many moving parts. And that's why I think the solution is people, the stakeholders, especially in the office market, because it, it has changed so much and will continue to, I think those stakeholders have got to be at at the table together.
0: Definitely. Definitely and kind of leading into the third financial markets, yeah. right? And it kind of sounds like we're getting gloomier and gloomier. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As the but that's okay because it's reality. Yeah, I mean, it is. the financial markets I think impact everything we've already talked about. Yeah. Right? You know, we we can talk about inflation, we can talk about interest rates. Obviously, they have a direct impact on real estate availability, viability, right? right? Yep. But they also impact Municipal financing. Yes. Right. Right. I mean, the interest rates, no one's immune to it. Right. I think is the biggest key. It's so borrowing costs for cities to fund infrastructure, fund other projects, things like that is gotten just as expensive as it is for everybody else. Right. Have, has there been a, Oh shit moment, you know, kind of starting to reverberate around some of these communities as they think about, all right, we were going to make this investment and we were going to finance it. But all of a sudden, you know, when we thought about that and we approved it, rates were here. Municipal right. debt was here. Now it's, it's here is the market. And that's when I mean, we're talking two X, two and a half X in some cases on the interest rate.
1: Well, and it's not just the interest rate, it's cost, right? Yeah. You're talking, you're talking infrastructure construction. is just like trying to build a house or remodel your bathroom, right? It's two or three times what it was 24 months ago. I think the communities I've talked to over the last, you know, two years, I think those that are kind of in a growth mode, right? So they're, they're regularly kind of undertaking projects of, of multiple kinds, whatever, sidewalks, roads, whatever. I think they do get it because I think they, they saw it pretty early, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they probably, you know, these growing communities had, you know, a number of projects in the pipeline. And so they watched those prices and those financing models change in real time. Yeah, right. And so I do think they've had those moments of, wow, you know, what we thought we could accomplish you know, now we can do half, or or, yeah, right. or that project we thought was paid for isn't, and I think that is a challenge for sure.
0: You know, there's so much recession talk, mm. right? I mean, I if if this if and when and we might be in a recession today, I guess GDP numbers said no, right? Last last read, you know, two point six percent growth. So okay, we didn't have two quarters of negative growth, so technically we're still not in a recession, right? But we could be in one, and we just don't know it, right? Do you think? those headwinds are going to get communities to also start thinking, right? Not only have their financing costs go up, but, you know, if you've turned on CNBC for more than five minutes or Bloomberg, or you name the financial news source, you know, it's, the news is not great. That's coming out, or at least the rhetoric, regardless of the data is mixed. It's all over the board, in my opinion, but do you think that's going to have a, a kind of an outlook impact not only on developers, but obviously even on the communities, as they think about making big investments?
1: I think that question comes up anytime we have economic tightening, right? There, there's always that that theory out there that we, we almost talk ourselves into recessions, right? Which We're doing a damn good job. Yeah, right I now. thought we're trying, right? <laughs> I think you and I are trying on this on this episode, maybe. No. Um, yeah, no, I think that's always part of it, right? Because when you see, I mean, Amazon came out, what was it, last week and, and really made some, or Jeff Bezos made yeah. some, you know, really kind of negative statements about his view of the future. And I mean, I think that
0: they had to earnings were like, 18% yeah, earnings, off. Yeah, earnings like, were terrible. So, um, <laughs> you can't go guys, guys, things are great. Everything's but, great. Yeah. But we screwed up. You know, I mean? <laughs> you got to blame it on something. <laughs> That's right. That's the financial
1: boogeyman. Right. Um, so, so those things certainly impact the market overall, right? Because yeah. whether you're an individual investor, you're a, you know, bank, you're, you know, a, a developer, whatever it may be. I mean, those things you know, have, have lasting impacts, but you know, I'm not an economist. Um, but people ask me this kind of question all the time. And, and I'll, I reflect basically my anecdotes from the last, you know, really six months and since, since kind of mid summer, you know, I think I've had a handful. It's not a lot. I've had a handful of clients kind of say, we're, we're pumping the brakes. I haven't really had them. I've had one, let me start with this on the corporate side. So corporate expansion kind of, you know, occupier type, type projects. We've had a few of those just kind of hit the brakes and say, we're going to wait six, nine months and and see. And we, you know, we've heard specifically the word headwinds and, and, you know, economic turmoil and that kind of stuff like that. That was the reason. But again, I would say that's a small percentage of, of my project. So it's out there, but it's for me in my world, it hasn't become prevalent yet. And then the second piece is on the, on the developer side, right? The real estate developer. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware of my clients and, and others in some of the markets I've, I've worked in that definitely have just, yeah. killed projects, right? They're, you know, that the financing barely made sense before, you know, things were tight and because of construction costs, right? Then the numbers got really, really tight. And then when interest rates shot up, it just made, you know, no sense at all. You know, so you've got, you've got major national developers canceling steel orders and, and, you know, letting real estate that they tied up, you know, letting it go back uh, on the market. And that stuff's very real. And and where we started early in this conversation was about real estate availability, right? And so I think that only makes things worse, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's the the curious thing, right? Because you have clients on one side that go, hey, doesn't everyone know a recession's coming? And well, vacancy's still vacancy. Right, right. You know, there's still multiple parties interested in this property. Right. And it's kind of this weird thing. And that's why I think in some cases, whether it's supply chain issues, or in this case, kind of a financial market contraction, but not necessarily being reflected yet in mm-hmm, the time, right we still continue to see rents going up we still continue to see all these factors and we're, i mean if you look at the cpi data or the core cpi data things are still going up so people are still taking that price increase right now so until that stops we're not going to see prices reduce that's right interesting so I jacob think, you know what what do you what do you think kind of comes next what are you predicting for next year you know, with your conversations, what are you preparing for with clients and other organizations that you collaborate with? Yeah. I think to, to put a bow on that last
1: conversation, there's certainly many threats for recession, but I do think there's still lots of momentum in the economy. Yeah. Again, you and I work with, you know, companies that are looking to grow in some capacity. That's pretty much all we do. And they're still out there. Right. And so I, I think that's our, 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 our last best chance against a recession is the fact that there is there's still a lot of corporate demand for space, for uh, expansion, for workers. I mean those are the, those are the things that keep the economy moving, right? Yeah. Uh, could that could that halt? Sure, it could, but I think there I still think there's a lot of momentum and I think there will be momentum going into January. As I prepare for 23, I can I expect to continue these decisions when I'm talking to companies about where they're gonna locate, what their strategy is, what the sizing is. I expect that to have more and more and more scrutiny on it. It doesn't mean it'll slow down. It might kind of take longer, but I've already seen it this year in terms of, you know, companies really being thoughtful before they step off that ledge. Right. You know, this is a 10 year lease guys, you know, are we ready for this? Do we need, you know, 70,000 square feet or do we need 40? (laughs) Um, You know, those kind of questions. I think everybody kind of, A year after COVID, man, things, everybody was just moving so fast, right? It was like, whatever whatever the per square footage is, like whatever the labor rates are, I got to have the space, like, let's go. I need it yesterday. The expectations are still to move really fast, but I think there's a lot more discernment about some of the key data points and the fundamentals of the business case that were kind of being glossed over before. (laughs) And now with the cost of labor, the cost of construction, financing, I think 2023 is going to be a, you know. Companies, people stroking the checks are going to be, you know, very critical of those decisions.
0: Yeah, no, I, I have to agree. So before we wrap up, we have a few questions we ask all our guests. All right, all right. What are you streaming right now? Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Apple TV. Oh, um, what are you obsessed with right now?
1: Well, I don't know if I'm obsessed, but we started the Dahmer, you know, series oh, on Netflix. So yeah. I'm only a few episodes in. So kind of catching up on that. Yeah, um, pretty pretty weird stuff.
0: Okay. What are you What are you listening to right now? Podcast, music.
1: I'm not super creative on the on the music side, but you know I like uh, the head and the heart was here in Indy. Um, okay. I don't know about a month ago. Went to that show. Fantastic show. Fantastic. Yeah. So love love the head and the heart and and that kind of stuff. You know, Lumineers, those guys. So mm-hmm. love so all that kind of indie, stuff. A little, little more, more, you know, you know, modern folk type stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty chill.
0: I like that. I like that.
1: They did a great show,
0: man. Head and heart. Some some of those bands are really good. What is? Are you a podcast guy?
1: You know, not a lot. Not a lot. No. Usually the ones my friends do, like you. Those are the ones I listen to.
0: <laughs> that was shameless, but I'll take it. I'll take the compliment. <laughs> you know what? What are you? What book recently have you read that really kind of had an impact on you? And it could be fiction, nonfiction. I don't care what it is. Well, it poems. I, I'm not
1: know. I'm not done with it yet. But I was at an event just two weeks ago and Michael McFall, who was uh, the ambassador to Russia uh, previously uh, spoke and, and I got a copy of his book uh, uh, at the event as well. And so I'm just diving into it, but it's kind of fascinating because he was on the ground there for many years and shared some of his perspectives on obviously everything going on in Ukraine and, um, so I'm fascinated to kind of read his detailed account. It's a thick book.
0: Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> uh, uh, his
1: detailed account of really his time there and all his interactions with you know the dynamics uh, within Russia and it's certainly certainly fascinating. So looking forward to getting through that one.
0: What was the Cliff Notes kind of, of his thesis of what's going on right now?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, he he really gave some comments just trying to figure out where where. Putin's head was and in, in some of the these, you know, theses out there about, you know, is it, is it just about power? Is it about you know pushing back on Western ideology and, and those kind of things? And also, you know, I, I think the most interesting thing I learned was he provided some historical quotes from Putin, who was not historically anti-Western, actually, was not anti-NATO. So things I didn't really know in historical context how his kind of ideology has changed over the course of his leadership in, in Russia and, and his p- entire posture has changed.
0: It's an interesting question. I'm a big foreign policy guy. I think you probably know that, but I always ask the question: Did he change, or is this his true colors?
1: Mm, good, good, good question.
0: You know, and I think that's something we'll never know. And I'm sure there'll be college courses if college still exists in 25 years that (laughs) that delve into this in great detail and you know pour over notes and transcripts but we'll have to see and i guess that's one thing we didn't talk about but at the end of the day those are impacting financial markets absolutely whether we want to admit it or not it has an impact on all of our lives it has impact on local real estate development in some cases right so
1: yeah and even you know just general Global affairs, supply chains, and, and everything that that invasion has has caused is is certainly disrupting really everything across the world in some in some way either large or small.
0: Well, and we all question after that. I know our clients. You know the term reshoring continues mm-hmm. to get brought up, but things like that get CEOs to question where's our supply chain, right? you know it's not a problem till it's a problem right <laughs> you know and so we'll we'll continue to see that but jacob thank you so much for coming on today it's been a pleasure having you the jacob Everett. loved it man please do where can where can people find out more about course strategies yeah
1: coursesstrategies.com check it dot out com. yeah happy to happy to talk economic
0: development Love corporate it. growth anytime it's been great having you thank you for thanks, coming thanks andrew on. you've been listening to urban foundry Thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, thank you to Colliers International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis.
1: If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.